well, it's 6.02. Um, maybe we should get started. Uh, so if you haven't figured this out already, I'm on the computer tonight. <laughs> so hi. Uh, unfortunately, I started feeling ill today. And around three o'clock, I came home and took my temperature and had a little bit of a fever. And I decided I shouldn't be at church. So Drew and I set up this magical Zoom situation. So my hope is um, that you guys will hear me clearly and see me. And then um, Bob Warner's got the microphone up front. So anytime you need my attention, Bob, <clears throat> if you wave your hands or just turn the microphone on even, it's fine. Then I'll be able to hear you guys. Um, great, thank you. A uh, couple of details before we get started. Um, I can see a lot of you, but probably not all of you. At the entrance, there were um, some sign-in sheets. So if you don't mind, at the end of our evening, if you've not done so already, just to let me know you're there in case I didn't see you. And also at the entrance were the slides for tonight. Uh, I'm going to use them, but I might cut away from them a little bit more than usual because I want to be able to see you, and I can't do that if I'm um, if I've got the slides going as well. So, uh, Bob, yeah. Did you push record? Thank you. Yes, I did. <laughs> Good call. I hit record. Excellent. Hi, Ruth. I see you on as well. Okay, so um, let's, let's open in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we get, thank you tonight for the wonders of modern technology and the opportunity to be together even at a distance. We pray that you would be in our technology. We pray that uh, we would have no hiccups or hangups uh, throughout our class. We particularly ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and through us as we reflect on what it means to be the church in this season uh, of our lives and of our nation. We love you, Jesus. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. All right. So I am going to share my screen for a few minutes, and um, hopefully that you guys can see that okay. Um, so uh, I'm really excited about where we're going over the next six weeks. I sure hope that I'll be there with you a few times in the next six weeks. But um, anyway, we are going to talk about what it means to be God's remnant, uh, to be a spiritual minority. And uh, so we'll spend some time tonight thinking about what that means. But let me just begin by giving you an overview of, of where we're going over the next six weeks. Okay, so I'd like you to have a sense of the flow. So uh, tonight, we're going to talk about a mental adjustment that I think is really critical um, for the church in our day and age. And that is this adjustment to being a spiritual minority, okay? So we'll talk a lot about that tonight. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about building an insurgent mindset uh, and what does it mean to be an insurgent church in our culture. Um, then on the 29th, I'm excited about this. We're going to talk about converting the church and what does it mean for us to evangelize the people that are already within our walls, okay? And then on the 6th, we'll talk about cooperating without compromising. That'll be about how we are engaging with the culture outside the church. And on the 13th, another conversation about engaging with culture outside the church, standing up and standing out. And then we will end on the 20th by talking about what success looks like. So what is our goal as the church? And what does it mean to be successful um, if we are a minority movement? All right, so that's kind of our, our big picture where we're going over the next six weeks. So tonight, I want to particularly focus on um, what it means to be uh, a, a minority culture 
and, uh, and have this sort of mental adjustment to being um, God's remnant. So I, I want to begin by talking about an article by Jeffrey Jones. And uh, Jeffrey Jones uh, works for Gallup Polling, and uh, he had an article on March 29th, 2021, that said U.S. church membership falls below majority for first time. And that picture of an empty church is really compelling, I think. So uh, this is a confusing statement, and we got to unpack it a little bit so you even know what the point of this poll was. Um, but I think it has great significance for us as we reflect on what it means to be the church in this season in our country's history. So uh, this was the question, one of the questions that was asked of people in the poll. Um, Gallup has been asking this poll for 80 plus years, so back before 1940. The question is, do you happen to be a member of a church, synagogue, or mosque? And you can see that back in 1940, uh, about 73% of Americans said yes. We had a peak in the late 40s, early, uh, well, actually the late 40s, where we had 76% of Americans say yes. And then we were pretty steady up until almost 2000, right, between uh, 68 and 73. And then you notice that in 2000, we start declining. And that decline was precipitous. And in 2020, when this poll was done, we were down to 47%, okay? So <clears throat> remember the question, do you happen to be a member of a church, synagogue, or mosque? This is not, um, do you believe in God? This is not, are you a Christian? This is not, do you go to a Christian church, okay? This is, do you go to church, synagogue, or mosque? So that means a couple things for us. Uh, number one, it means um, that of that 47% of U.S. adults who belonged as a member to a church, synagogue, or mosque, less than that are Christians, right? Because some percentage of that number are Muslims or Jews. So that's pretty shocking. Um, and uh, as you just saw on that slide, we, we have gone down 20 percentage points or more, actually 26 percentage points from our high point uh, between 1945 and 1950 in terms of people in America that are involved in a church, synagogue, or mosque. So <clears throat> we're not going to have the time I'd like to have to unpack why that is tonight. We'll talk about it a little bit. But there are two really critical factors in that change, okay? The first factor is the number of Americans with no religious preference. So this has risen significantly in the last 20 years, from 2020 to 20, I'm sorry, uh, 2000 to 2020, where you saw that precipitous decline. Uh, in 1998, 8% of Americans said they had no religious preference. In 2021, it was 21%. That's a, that more than doubled, right? That's a 13% increase of Americans that are simply saying, I don't, I don't do religion. I have no religious preference. The second factor in this change is, um, people that are believers, but don't go to church, okay? So there's a decline in church membership among Americans who do have a religious preference. What that means is 47% um, of U.S. adults belong to a church, synagogue, or mosque, but more than that proclaim to be Christians, Jews, or Muslims, okay? So one more um, slide for you. Um, you can see at the very bottom that in 2000, 90% of Americans were had a religious affiliation of some kind. 
And by 2020, that was 76%. So we talked about the, the significant decline in people with no affiliation. But those persons who have a religious affiliation, meaning um, when you ask me, I tell you I'm a Christian, who go to church on a regular basis, has also declined significantly in the last 20 years. So in 2000, 73% of Americans who said they went to church, synagogue, or mosque, I'm sorry, let me, let me rephrase, 73% uh, of Americans um, who said they were a believer of some kind went to a church, synagogue, or mosque. And in 2020, only 60% of Americans who said they were believers went to church, synagogues, or mosques. So we see two significant declines, right? There's a decline in the activity of people that profess to be Christian, and there's a decline in the total number of persons professing religion in our country, okay? And those two things together contribute to this dramatic change over the last 20 years. Okay, um, I, I, I think, however, I, I know, by the way, in the evening after dinner, nothing really gets you fired up and excited like some good statistics, right? So you're welcome. Try to settle down now. Let's get serious. That was the fun part. Um, so I, I believe there is more to this than just numbers. Uh, and I think that we can see the declining influence uh, of the church and our culture beyond the statistics I just showed you. So here's a few examples. Um, who remembers by a show of hands when um, restaurants and stores closed on a Sunday? Yeah, a lot of people. Um, and where there were no soccer games, hockey games, or softball games that competed with worship on Sunday morning. Right? Uh, yeah, that's no longer the case, right? So we are competing with all kinds of um, not bad things, but non-Christian events on a Sunday morning. Uh, my daughter Zoe, for her birthday, really would like to take a pottery class where you, you know, the, the pottery wheel where you learn to spin the pot on a wheel. And we found a location in town that offers such a class, but they only offer it at 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Uh, and so as a family, we have to decide, right? For our daughter's birthday, do we give her the thing she really wants or do we make her go to church, right? And, and this is a new reality in our culture that wasn't going on even, uh, you know, 40 years ago. Uh, the other, uh, another factor of this um, increasing distance between church and culture is what I would call the general unfamiliarity with Christian theology and scripture. <clears throat> that, that sounds really big, but what that means is really simple. When, when a lot of us grew up, the information, the basic stories of the Bible and the characters were kind of common knowledge. So you could have a conversation with somebody who wasn't necessarily even a Christian, and they probably knew who David and Goliath were. Right? And they had heard the story of Jonah uh, being swallowed by the fish. And they probably knew who Mary, the mother of Jesus, was. Right, And they, they had that basic information. That's not the case anymore. And increasingly, I have conversations with wonderful people who are spiritually interested in Christianity who have no familiarity whatsoever. I've had conversations with people who've said, hey, Jim, um, I, I noticed on Sunday mornings, you always read from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we don't know what those words mean. And are they part of the Bible or is that something different? Right? And, and that would have been information that was widely available at a cultural level 20, 40 years ago. Uh, social cultural decision-making largely disconnected from traditional Christian ethics. Uh, so what I mean by this is 
Um, even for those places in our culture that weren't necessarily Christian, um, there were some Christian assumptions that were sort of taken as a given. And um, some of those are controversial. And I'm, I'm, tonight, I don't want to make a case about what's right or wrong. But traditionally, in the Christian church, you know, we, we viewed uh, one view of marriage, for example, or one view of gender identity. And those things have changed dramatically in the last 20 years, right? Wh whatever your opinion about that is good or bad, we can recognize there's a dramatic change. But, but even on a more basic level, um, there was a television show that was on Fox, a major broadcast network for three years, and then transferred to Netflix for three years. It was called Lucifer. And the main character was the devil. Now this was, I guess, the devil from a comic book world. So it was, you know, the, the Superman, Batman version of the devil, but none of those superheroes were in the movie. Lucifer was the protagonist, right? Or in the television show. And it's hard to imagine going back even 20 years and having a major network have a television show where the protagonist was the devil, right? Uh, one, one more example of, of sort of the increasing change is the discomfort with the religious presence and the public sphere. We've talked before about the difference between freedom of religion and freedom from religion. And uh, I think increasingly, as we see in um, the, the world around us uh, and, and, and our culture around us, there is a desire to have a, sort of a public sphere that's free from religion. Um, so rather than saying, hey, everybody's religious views should be respected, we say, hey, the way to respect everybody's religious views is to make sure they don't talk about them in public. Uh, and, and I think we see that in, in all kinds of examples in our world today. Um, so th these are just some, I'm sure you can think of others. These are some examples of this sort of major change we've seen, particularly in the last 20 years, about the influence of church in our culture and our movement towards uh, what I would call a, a minority status, okay? So I, I'm gonna pause for questions for a second, but before I do that, um, uh, I just wanna ask, what does all this mean, okay? Uh, and um, I, I wanna say, first of all, um, while a majority of Americans, it's actually probably 60, 76%, but 70 plus percent profess a religious affiliation, not necessarily Christianity, I would say, I'll throw the gauntlet down, it is no longer accurate to state that America is a Christian nation. Okay, I'll let that sit for a minute. Um, it's no longer accurate to say that America is a Christian nation. And then, uh, and I want to get into this next, was it ever, right? What does it mean when we hear people say things like America is a Christian nation? Okay, uh, let me just pause for a moment uh, before I, I talk about that question. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop my screen share so I can see more of you guys. Um, questions, thoughts, comments about this idea of um, a movement from a, a, a Christian culture to a more of a secular culture where Christians are, are in sort of a minority status. Have I convinced you? Do you, do, you, do you see evidence of this? Or do you say, no, Jim, you're, you're overstating the case?
Uh, Bob, unfortunately, I couldn't hear that. Can you repeat it, please? And Mike's comment was both he and his wife uh, grew up in Christianity and in the 60s and up through high school, all four of his daughters uh, were involved in Christian activities and professed to be Christians. And now, since they've graduated from college and gone on their own, not a one of them is uh, following the faith. Mm. Yeah, that's really, that's really hard. Thanks for sharing that, Mike. Yeah. Question, Jim. Yeah, Ruth, go ahead. Um, you know, we saw the change in the family structure too. In, and I, I don't know the timeline for that in terms of a, a two-parent home, but it, it does seem like in some homes, and, and certainly single parents can do amazing things, but um, I'm wondering what that correlation is. And, and it's, it's sometimes difficult for a single parent to do everything, uh, raise children, work, try to get things done on the weekend so they can the kids can do the week and they can too. So I wonder if there's a correlation, but um, I haven't looked that up. It's a wonderful point. And, you know, I think we in the church forget how incredibly difficult it is to be a single parent. Um, and, you know, it, it's nothing like what other single parents deal with, but, you know, even, even on a very minor scale, my wife on a Sunday morning is kind of a single parent, right? I mean, I'm never there to help get the kids dressed in the morning. I'm never there to help get the kids in the car in the morning. I, I never sit with the kids in the pew. I don't take them to Sunday school. I don't pick them up afterwards. I don't fight them about donuts, right? It's, it's all her. Um, and I think she would be the first to tell you that it is exhausting to do that by herself every Sunday. Um, so yeah, excellent point. Uh, I think we underestimate how um, challenging single parenthood is and how it affects um, the progression of our, the passing on of our faith, because we just, it's just hard. Yeah. Great. Others? Yeah, to go along with that, I think that, so I was raised in Catholic church um, growing up, and I decided to leave that church at, like in my 20s, because I didn't quite agree with them. And then when I was looking to come back to church, we started, I'm a single parent, and we went to the Catholic church, and they were not as accepting as, of our lifestyle because I'm a single parent. They made it sound like it was a horrible thing. And I never wanted my daughter to feel ashamed but that is the feeling that they gave us. So finding this church here has totally changed my thoughts and I'm happy to be a part of it. But I just think sometimes churches will look down on the family structure and that does sometimes take us away from church. Jim, did you hear that? I did. And that was an excellent point. And you know, I, the sad reality is that um, for all kinds of reasons, a lot of moms wouldn't have the energy or time or willpower or whatever it was to try again, right? You go to a church, you get burned at the church and you say, well, I tried it, you know, 
And so, you know, thankfully you did, and thankfully you found us and we're really happy you're here, but yeah, I, I can imagine a lot of folks saying, Hey, I tried it. It didn't work. The church wasn't what they said they were. Yeah. Yeah. Surely. Some of the um, colleges at the college level throws a lot of cold water on religious belief. And they they turn out the individual, they they almost give them an idea that they are intellectually I'm gonna say superior, but I don't mean to that degree, then whatever they've learned so far. You know, and, and also I think there's an element, and I'm so happy to see that we have such a lively high school level awareness because if the kids aren't ready for to stand up against or argue for what they're being told in the colleges, they wind up, you know, they don't want to attend because that's what they do. And it's kind of like, oh, you know, this is news to me, and they don't know how to handle it. <clears throat> so I just think that that's, that's a big part of what's, you know, what kind of gets me going the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm with you. And I think, um, you know, the, the reality is there are so many of those points like university where, you know, th there is um, an alternative worldview that's very intentionally being propagated. Now, that's not always bad. I don't want all of our universities to be only teaching Christianity. We have a world, you know, freedom of religion, right? But uh, I, I think especially in the last 20 years, there has been and this is the fault of the church and of the secular institutions, there's been a sense of, of conflict, right? That you have to pick a side because science and faith or, or intellectualism and faith or education and faith are somehow at loggerheads. Um, and, and that is a tragedy that um, we are somewhat guilty for and then, and then so are they. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Bob. Just to carry on with what Shirley was saying, time since I've had kids in school, but I see my grandchildren and it just seems to me that the higher education they go, rather than being taught how to think, uh, too many times they're being taught what to think. And it may or may not align with the values that their parents have or what they've been brought up with, uh, unless it's a very strong Christian household. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I agree. That's excellent point. Yeah, that we're, we're somehow taught how to think, uh, what to think and not how to think. Yep. Ruth, and then I'm going to pull it back. Sure. I, I guess I'm going to challenge that a little bit um, and say that I, I certainly would like to hear some specific examples of that. But having gone through um, a couple of different institutions to get degrees, I hadn't it never was taught to me that organized religion, there was something wrong with it, ever. 
it was never mentioned. Now you may take a religion class and they may, but they don't really compare religions and say this one is better or this one is not, or atheism is the way to go. You learn about that religion and those faiths. So I have never heard from an institution that they are teaching kids um, to throw their values out the window, to, to tell you the truth. But now you've attended uh, institutions. Uh, did you feel that there was coming from the classroom, Jim, that kind of feeling? So I guess I want some specifics because I think that I think that that idea is out there and I'm questioning that yeah. and like to know some validity to that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to try to speak that a little bit. Uh, my, my short answer would be, um, you know what, can we do one thing? Um, Bob and Ruth, if you both mute, I'm wondering if it'll switch back to me so I can share my screen again. Um, are you seeing me on the screen there, Bob? Yeah, you are. Okay, good. Awesome. Um, so uh, I think we have to be careful that we don't overgeneralize. And without a doubt, there is, you know, like anything else in the world, there are great, there's great teaching and bad teaching. Um, and I think most, I mean, I'm, I come from a family of teachers. My wife's a teacher. My mom is a teacher. My aunt was a teacher. So I, I guess I'm a little biased in, in saying, you know, our teachers are wonderful servants who do great work. Um, I, I didn't have any negative experiences in high school. Um, I did have a few in college. Um, and actually, ironically, it was in my religion classes um, where I, I had professors who were, were deeply vested in undermining the historical um, authenticity of scripture. And they were pretty explicit about that. And um, I, was, I was really surprised um, because I, I went into some of those classes thinking I was gonna learn about the content of the Bible and um, some of those classes ended up being, here's why you shouldn't believe the content of the Bible. But that's not a universal experience. It certainly wasn't my experience in high school. Um, and I hope other people have a, a different experience um, in some of their education. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna come back a little bit to this big idea then about um, is America a Christian nation? Um, and if I share this again, uh, and I make this big, um, and now I can't see, hold on, I'm sorry. This is the challenge of the technology. I would like to see, um, Bob, can you guys see my screen share now? Okay, great. Um, all right, so um, I, I, I wanna come back to this idea that um, while we have moved, I believe, pretty clearly to a minority status um, in, in terms of a cultural influence, um, I, I'm not sure we are right to state that America was a Christian nation 20 years ago. Um, so I, I would, again, I would love to do a whole bunch of American church history. We don't have time for that tonight. So I'm gonna do this very, very quick overview. Um, this comes from a wonderful book called Future Church by Will Mancini. And uh, he categorizes the, the life of the church in these 20 year periods since World War II, which is similar to the Gallup polling we just saw. Uh, and so he talks about this idea that um, from 1940 to 1960, we had a, a wartime revival. Uh, in that period, after the World War II, um, after the Great Depression, um, as we went into the Cold War, was this period of, of huge national unity. 
And Christianity became sort of part and parcel of that. And, and this was the season, as you saw on our, um, on our graph earlier, where we had the largest involvement of, of in churches ever in American history. And that's an important detail. I mean, ever. So before or after, that was the high watermark. Uh, and then um, in the 60s and 70s, we have what um, Mancini calls the golden era of denominationalism. Uh, and this is as the baby boomers move out into the suburbs, um, churches are being planted as fast as we can, because we know that, hey, if the Presbyterians get to that community first, then they're going to get to um, be the church for that community. And um, there are all kinds of things going on on the national level in terms of dissatisfaction with authority. We have Vietnam, we have civil rights, we have all kinds of things happening. Um, but they're not as reflected in the life of the church in that season. Uh, and so for a lot of us in that season, it still felt like church was pretty central. Um, and then in the 80s and 90s, we have what Mazzini calls the new permission era. And basically, this is the idea that by that time, the church was already beginning to recognize that there were huge numbers of unchurched persons in their communities. And this is the rise of big churches like Willow Creek and Saddleback and the seeker-sensitive movement, where they were, in a, I think, in an understandable way, trying to market Christianity to people that had sort of um, come to identify as consumers. Uh, what, what I want you to realize is even before the last 20 years, where we had this um, big change in the, um, the attendance in church, we already saw a, a peak and then uh, the beginnings of a decline, right? So this wasn't, it's not the last 20 years are a total aberrant thing. Um, it's, a, it's part of a larger process we've been in for a long time. Uh, I'm not going to talk about this, but if you're really excited, um, I gave you Mancini's five categories, including 20 to 2000 to 2020 and whatnot. Um, and so it's just too much information to go through tonight. But if you read that and have questions, call me. I'd love to talk about it. Okay. Um, uh, what what I, I want to point out is that even in American history, uh, this idea of, of overwhelming majorities of people being involved in the church wasn't always the case. So what, what about outside of American history? What about the Bible, right? Um, and um, when in the history of scripture have the, the people of God, whether that was Israel or the church, ever been a majority? Um, so I, I, I just put some categories down here. Um, and I named the patriarchs, right? That's the period of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. The Exodus, right? The period where Moses leads people out of Israel. I'm sorry, out of Egypt. Judges, the period of tribal leadership in Israel for 400 years. Kings, when Saul and David and Solomon, and then a whole bunch of other guys um, and one woman um, rule the, the two nations of Israel. The exile, where they go to Babylon, they return from exile. The Jesus movement, by which I mean the season while Jesus is active in ministry on earth and then the early church. Um, so just briefly, I'm curious, and I'll, I'm going to stop share so I can see you again. Um, I'm curious if um, there are any points in there where you feel like, oh yeah, here's a season where the people of God were in the majority. Um, anything come to mind? This is an unfair question because it's because it's loaded, right? Um, and and the the answer is going. My answer is going to be almost none. 
And, and I think this is a really important idea that maybe isn't intuitive to us as we normally read scripture. I think we normally read scripture and we'd say, well, how about during the Exodus when Moses led all the Israelites and they saw miracles all the time and they heard the Ten Commandments, et cetera, et cetera. But I think if we go back and read the stories of Moses, it's pretty clear that most of the time, most of the people don't believe in God and don't trust Moses. So a, a couple of really easy examples. After Moses goes to the mountain, the Israelites make the golden calf. He comes down from the mountain and he says, who stands with me and with Yahweh? And one tribe out of 12 stands with him. That means 11 twelfths of all the Israelites who were led out of the, uh, the nation of Egypt as slaves did not side with Moses and Yahweh. Um, remember, for example, the moment where the Israelites entered the promised land and they're one giant army and they send in their spies and 10 spies come back and say, no, we can't do it. And two spies come back and say, yes, we can. And the whole community sides with the two spies, I'm sorry, the 10 spies against the two, even though Moses and Yahweh are on the side of the two. Uh, as you read the stories of the Exodus, you, you hear one story after another after another uh, of the rebellion of the majority or significant numbers of people against Moses and God. That reality is true throughout really the whole story of scripture. Uh, and we see this in the prophets and we see this in the stories of the kings. Um, and, and it's important for us to realize that as we're reading the Bible, we're getting a minority report about what was happening um, and what was right and wrong in those seasons. So, uh, for example, in the book of Kings, the worst king is a guy named Manasseh, and one of the best kings is a guy named Josiah. Manasseh reigns for 55 years. The nation is enormously wealth wealthy and successful under his reign. And when you read his story in the book of Kings, uh, the authors of Kings hate him, right? And, and portray him as the worst thing that ever happened to the nation of, his, of, of Judah. But do you think that everybody who lived under his reign when they were prosperous and successful and stable all felt that way? Probably not. Most people probably liked Manasseh. And vice versa, Josiah, this king that's unbelievably godly and destroys every other religion and goes to incredible lengths to end the worship of other faiths during his reign, probably not a popular guy, right? So um, I, I want us to get this idea that the, the majority of the stories in scripture are stories about minority movements, minorities of people having faith in God um, and how they respond in the context of a majority setting where people are not being faithful. Um, obviously, we see this in the story of Jesus where most people don't come to believe in him. We see this in the story of the early church where most Jewish people don't become Christians and most Gentiles don't become Christians right away. And um, really an important idea. So um, then I want to ask, I think, a, a pretty simple question. Um, oh, gosh. Okay. I, I want to talk about when that changed. Um, and <clears throat> we don't have time for this either. But briefly, um, I blame a guy named Constantine. Okay. Constantine was the Roman emperor um, from 306 to 337 AD. He is the first Roman emperor to be overtly Christian. He issues the Edict of Milan in 313 to legalize Christianity because before that point, it was illegal to be a Christian and um, does enormous work to make Christianity um, sort of popular in the empire. Doesn't make it the legal religion yet. That happens later, um, but he makes it um, popular. Okay. Uh, and in that moment, a huge change happens where it becomes mainstream or, or almost um, 
there's a mainstream benefit to becoming a Christian, right? You might get ahead in your social circle or in your political arena or whatever, because now the government is pro-Christian, okay? Um, all right, can I get this to work? Okay, um, so I, I wanna ask a, a one big question. Um, why is the history of the people of God in scripture almost entirely the account of a spiritual minority experience? Why is it that under Moses and under Josiah and under David and under all these people, um, we get these minority reports instead of seeing the whole nation um, faithfully and fully with a long-term commitment coming back to God? And why do we see only some people follow Jesus and only some people join the early church? Um, I, I think there's this is a question that's really important for us because if we are beginning to see ourselves as a spiritual minority or as God's remnant, we are beginning to see ourselves as the people of the Bible ordinarily saw themselves. So why? Why is the history of the people of God in Scripture um, a minority experience? So here's what I want to ask you to do. Um, I'm going to ask you to turn to somebody in, um, in the room next to you, and I'm going to give you all of five minutes, okay? And I'm going to ask you to answer two questions. What are the negative effects of being a spiritual majority? What are the negative effects of being a majority as the church? What are the positive effects of being a minority? Okay, so I'm just going to give you five minutes. What are the negative effects of being a majority? What are the positive effects of being a minority? And we're going to talk about that together in a minute, all right? Um, so literally five minutes, find somebody nearby and talk amongst yourselves. Okay, um, I, I hate to cut off any conversation, but I'm going to pull you back and... Um, I'm, I'm interested to hear, I, I know you had a lot of things to say, but um, anybody want to share a couple of ideas, or, or one idea rather, of some of the dangers, the downsides, the negatives of being in the majority um, as, a, as a religious body or a, um, as a church? I think there's a little bit of a coasting a lack of commitment uh, when you're in the majority you don't feel like you need to work as hard okay love it i love it okay good Tom? We, we think that uh, being a negative effects of being a spiritual majority is if people will look at you and try to set you up too fast because we've got things going our way but do you hear that, Jim? It cut out a little bit. Can you repeat the, the what he said? Say, say it again louder. Yeah, we're thinking the negative effect would be we're more of a got target on our back than those that want us to tell you how to Okay, so there's a there's a, a target on your back kind of thing. Okay, yeah, sure, interesting. Others, any other ideas of the negatives of being majority? Shirley made a point and summed it up. It, 
country western song if you don't stand for something you're going to fall for anything and uh -huh. you're just going to go with the flow yeah yeah and you don't need to stand as firm for something if you assume everybody else already agrees with you right yeah excellent that's great that's great um okay is there one more anything else anybody would add to that great answers Well, I, I thought of a few on my own list and you named a bunch of them already, but I'll just briefly share. Um, uh, as I was thinking about this question, I'm thinking that this is not an accident, right? Nor is it a failure. So I, I don't believe that the history of the people of God is a minority experience because God's not good at being God or that Moses was a failure, or Jesus was a failure. I, I don't think that's the case, right? So there must be some positives, some intentionality in this idea, okay? Uh, and so you named a bunch of things that I would name. It's easy to name the benefits of being a spiritual minority, a majority, right? It's easy to say, hey, you know, it's easy to be a Christian if everyone's a Christian around me. Um, but some dangers, um, I would say um, there is some secular social pressure to outwardly conform to Christian beliefs. And that sounds like maybe a good thing, um, but I think our faith is more about why we do things than what we do. And I think there are many situations in the Christian life where there might even be two different answers that Christians can disagree on, but if our motivations are right, right, if we're, if we're earnestly trying to follow the will of Jesus uh, as revealed to us through scripture, um, they could both be appropriate choices. Um, and so when our culture tells us to be Christian, and that's separated from our own internal motivation to love and follow Jesus, we can do the right thing for the wrong reason. And I think uh, in those seasons where Christianity was in the majority in America, or those seasons where um, faith in Yahweh was in the majority in the time of Israel, um, were probably seasons where people were believing because of secular social pressure, right? If you don't listen to Josiah, he will cut your head off. Okay, well, all of a sudden following Yahweh sounds really good, right? Or if you don't go to a church, then you can't get a job in our community. Okay, well, then I want to go to a church so I can get a job. Um, so good outcomes for bad reasons can actually be really detrimental to the church. Uh, I think there can be an assumption of Christian values, motivations, and beliefs. Somebody else just said this. And where we assume things, we don't teach them, right? I mean, really simple. I, I assume that you're smart enough to not jump off the top of the house. And so I don't have a conversation with my children to say, please don't go on the roof and jump off. Um, where we assume that you understand our Christian values uh, about how you should treat people or how you should follow God then we don't always teach those as effectively. Uh, somebody said complacency, and I wrote it down too, right? That we simply um, stop trying and, and just sort of assume that because I was born here, I'm a Christian. Because I was baptized, I was a Christian. I don't have to do anything to follow Jesus. I just, I'm American, so I must be following Jesus. Uh, I think there's also a convergence of the secular and the sacred. And we talked about this with Constantine. You know, my favorite quote is from Tony Campolo, where he says, mixing church and state is like mixing ice cream and cow manure. It doesn't do much for the cow manure, but it really ruins the ice cream. And uh, as we look at those places in our world where 
the secular and the sacred completely merged. Think about Europe um, in the Middle Ages. Think about, well, even America in the 40s and 50s and 60s, right? We, we do see a, a brief growth followed usually by an explosive decline um, because faith is supposed to be about your love for God and not your obedience to the government. Right? So again, freedom of religion, not freedom from religion, um, but still freedom. Yeah. Okay. Um, let, let, me, let me pause there for just a minute. And I'm curious um, if you thought about some of the blessings of being a spiritual minority. What's the upside to not, we just named the downside of being in the majority sometimes. What's the upside of being a minority? Ooh, that one's a little harder, huh? So, oh, go ahead, Bob. I was going to say you, you're always in some really good company. <laughs> that's true. You're always in good company. Absolutely. Yeah, that's huge. Let, let, me, let me throw out some of my ideas, and then I hope you guys will pile on, Okay. Um, so I will just do this one more time. Um, so uh, I think um, that when we are a spiritual minority, making a faith commitment to Jesus is a thoughtful and deliberate decision instead of, as we said before, something you default into. Um, if you are living in the Roman Empire, uh, while it is illegal upon pain of death to be a Christian, you don't become a Christian unless you are totally in love with Jesus. Right? You don't become a Christian because your neighbor is Christian. You don't become a Christian because you want to uh, get employment in your neighborhood. You don't become a Christian because they have a good benefits plan. Right? You become a Christian because you're in love with Jesus, because your life is at stake. So you have to love him more than your life. Uh, and this idea um, that the more we're in the minority, the more real faith it requires to choose to follow Jesus is really a compelling one for me. Um, so uh, that's huge for me. Um, I, I think, and someone mentioned this maybe earlier as well, but I think we have increased dedication to the formation of Christian identity. What, what do I mean by that? Um, you know who's really good at being a spiritual minority of our, in, in our country at least, are, are Jewish people, right? Uh, most of my Jewish friends are um, people of faith, and they have um, beautifully walked a line of saying, hey, here's all the things I love about our culture and where I'm willing to accommodate. And then here's the places where I'm really going to be totally different. Um, and I'm going to pass on that difference to my kids. It is deeply important to me that my kids grow up in the Jewish tradition. So we're going to do Passover in our home every year. And we're going to sweep the crumbs out of the corners. And we're going to remove all the yeast from the house. And um, we're going to spend seven days in a tent during the festival booths and all these things because it is deeply important that my kids grow up knowing what it means to be Jewish. And I recognize that's my job, but I have to pass it on. They're not going to get that from school or from their friends. They're only going to get it from me and from their synagogue. Uh, I think when we're in a minority, we're better at that, right? Because we recognize how critical it is. Uh, I think there's an offense against conforming to the world. This sounds weird, right? Because you think, hey, when you're in the minority, everybody is telling you to be like them. It would be easier just to conform. But I think um, when, when we realize what makes us distinctive, when we realize what makes us different and we like it, 
it's easier for us to say, yeah, I don't want to be like everybody else. I, I love celebrating Hanukkah and I don't need to celebrate Christmas, right? Um, I also think there's more motivation for evangelism, obviously, if, if we um, identify ourselves as a minority and we love other people, we want to invite them into that story. Um, there's also, I think, less motivation for culture wars. I think one of the problems for the church in the last 20 years has been we have been fighting to maintain our grip, our sort of dominant control over culture. Um, and obviously, there are topics that are worthy of our engagement on a political and social level, right? Obviously. But I don't know that it matters whether somebody says Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays when I check out at a restaurant, right? Or when I leave a store. I don't think it matters to me whether Starbucks puts, um, you know, a Christian scene on their cups or whether they put Santa Claus in their cups. And being able to sort of get out of those culture wars and say, hey, what actually matters to us as a people? It's not the control over the culture. It's this love of Jesus that motivates us that we want to invite other people into. Uh, and then, uh, obviously, I guess this was a given. Uh, we look and act different from those around us when we're in the minority, right? And people notice that. Uh, again, because um, I have a lot of Jewish friends, and I think they're so great at this. Um, and in Norfolk, where I used to live, we had a very large Orthodox Jewish population. And so um, my Orthodox Jewish friends wore distinctive clothing, including yarmulkes and tassels on their shirts that hung down um, below their coats. Um, they often dressed in black and white. Um, they knew that they couldn't walk more than a mile from their home on Sabbath. They had people that would come over and turn their lights for them on Sabbath because they couldn't turn a light switch on on Sabbath. And all of these things um, made them truly look and act different. And I think that's kind of wonderful. And, and I think part of the, the desire for Jesus is that we would be a community that looks and acts different. Okay. Um, I, I want to just, I got one last thing and then I want to um, end with the opportunity for questions and conversation. Um, so my, my beginning comment here was we have, I think in the American church had a, a mentality of being in the majority for a long time. And I think critical for us in this season of the church's life is to mentally adjust and say, no, that's not us anymore we need to figure out what it means to be church as a minority and recognize that we stand in continuity, not only with other American Christians before the 40s and 50s and 60s, but also with all the people of scripture, right? That it's a story of a minority movement. Um, and I wanna say, you know, what would it mean if we owned that identity? Uh, the Bible talks about spiritual minorities as God's remnant. Uh, and one, I'll just read briefly uh, one example of this. There are, um, I think there's 60 or 70 times the word remnant is used in the Bible to describe the people of God. Uh, but I, uh, Romans chapter 11, Paul writes and says, <clears throat> he's talking about the reality that only some Jews followed Jesus, that most Jews didn't, right? And he's saying, why didn't the majority follow Jesus? He says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Uh, we're told this beautiful story in the book of Kings where Elijah um, thinks the whole nation is arrayed against him. And he flees to Mount Sinai where Moses got the Ten Commandments and there God speaks to him. And he says, God, I'm literally, literally the last person who's faithful to you. And God says, no, there's a remnant, but it's bigger than just you, right? It's 7,000 people who haven't followed false gods yet. Uh, go back and lead them, right? Go back and help them. Go back and shape them and direct them. Uh, and, and Paul claims that for the identity of the church. He says, we are God's remnant, right? We are this minority of people that are faithfully following God in a world that doesn't know what that means. And there's a great purpose in that, right? The purpose of the remnant is to be a blessing to all the nations. As, as we hear in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, as God calls Abraham the very first remnant, right? And he says, actually, no, Noah's the first remnant. But anyway, he calls Abraham the, the first remnant after chapter 11. And he says, you know, I will make a great nation of you and I will bless you. And all nations on earth will be blessed through you. That's the purpose of the remnant, right? The purpose of the spiritual minority is to be so distinctively faithful in following Jesus that the world is blessed through us. Uh, so um, I want to ask us this week particularly to think about what it means to, to adjust to an idea that we're not the majority, we're the minority, that's just as God wants it to be. And as the minority, we have a critical role to play in God's world if we can embrace our identity as God's remnant. Okay, um, I know I'm. it's 7.02. Um, even when I'm sick, I go over. It's unbelievable. Um, but let me just pause for a minute and I just, I just hate to end without an opportunity for people to ask questions or share comments. Any thoughts or questions or comments um, about all of that? Crickets. I always assume that silence means I have explained things really well. I also realize it could mean I totally lost you. So I'm hoping it's the former and not the latter. Okay. Um, so I just want to let you know that next week uh, we will be discussing what it means to have an insurgent mentality. So if we buy into this mental adjustment that we're um, supposed to be and are a, a God's remnant in our communities and our culture and in our nation and in our world, then what do we do with that? What, what are the consequences of accepting that identity? Okay, so I'm, I'm really excited. I think it's going to be a really fun conversation next week. A um, couple of other little details. We are recording this, so I will send you a, a link sometime this week so you can watch it or pass it on if you want to. And it'll also be available on our website. And if you didn't already sign in and let me know you were here, please, please, please do that because I can't see all of you. Uh, and there are sign-up sheets on the two music stands at the exits of the sanctuary. Just, just your name, unless you think I don't have your phone number or email, in which case you can share that too. All right. Let me close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the calling to be a blessing to the nations. We thank you for our identity as your remnant. We thank you that we stand in continuity with the early church, with Jesus and his disciples with the people of God throughout the entire Old Testament. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us this week 
to wrestle with what this identity means and how it will shape our lives going forward as we seek to be uh, the light and the salt, the remnant you call us to be. We love you, Jesus. It's in your holy name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.